In the time remaining, I'd like you to turn, if you wouldn't mind, to your, in your Bibles to the book of Luke, New Testament, third book in, the book of Luke, chapter 15. There's a woman who brought some eyeglasses that belonged to her husband back to the optometrist, and she wanted to return them. So she walked in, there was the doctor, she handed the glasses that belonged to her husband back to the optometrist. He said, what's the problem? And she said, I bought these for my husband, but he's still not seeing things my way. <laughs> I want to talk to you today about vision. And that's a word that is tossed around maybe a little too freely. Many organizations, many churches use the term vision. And they will often even quote uh, Proverbs 29, where there is no vision, the people perish. One of the most misapplied verses in all of the Bible, uh, as if to say, here's what we're going to do. This is what I think is important. You need to catch that vision when the text really talks about a revelation from God. So uh, when we talk about vision, we're obviously not talking about eyesight. Um, we don't need you to get your prescription checked this week. Uh, we're not talking about insight, the ability to understand, as much as we're talking about foresight, the ability to uh, look to the future and discern what it is God is wanting you to walk in and to do. That's what we mean by vision. And we call this Vision Week, and it's sort of like it's sort of like New Year's. You know, at New Year's, we always consider the past and then think about the future. We think what God has done, and then we pivot to think about what God wants to do. That's what we typically do uh, when it's New Year's time. So what we want to do is, is very similar to what they did in the Old Testament. They would sometimes have memorial stones. They would put rocks on top of each other and build a little altar out of it. And then Later on, kids would come by and say, Hey, Daddy, what's that pile of rocks doing here? And the dad would say, I'm glad you asked, son. Let me tell you what happened at this place years ago. This is what God did. And then that was followed typically by a therefore. This is now what the Lord wants us to do. Moses would say to the people, You shall remember all the way the Lord led you. Therefore. So we call that Vision Week, and we think it's important for churches to do that because as churches age, uh, typically people get more concerned with their own comfort than their own calling, and we need to be reminded of our calling. Today we consider what we call the heart behind the hand, that is the individual in the midst of the crowd. You know, at church people sometimes will raise their hands in worship, Paul writes to Timothy and says, I desire all men everywhere to lift up hands, holy hands, without wrath or doubting. It's a, it's a really a great gesture of surrender to the Lord. It's like a child that would reach out uh, his or her arms to mom or dad. Uh, also, at the end of our service, sometimes people will raise their hand as an indication to be prayed for as they give their lives to the Lord. But connected to those hands are people, people with backgrounds, people with their own story, people with their own emotions and fears and hopes and aspirations. And we cannot, we must not separate 
the hand from the heart. And what does that have to do with vision? Simply this. We don't count hands. We care for hearts. Uh, We don't just acknowledge hands. We acknowledge and affirm and appeal to hearts, to people who are behind the hands. It's all about the one. Years ago, Tommy Walker wrote a great song. I bet you'll remember it when I say the lyrics. He knows my name. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears me when I call. God sees the one, the individual. So think of one person. One person that you will love. One person that you will pray for. One person that you will share with. One person that you will invite. And think of it this way, before they raise their hand to receive Christ, you may need to extend your hand to show the love of Christ. Before they ever reach up, you may need to reach out to them in love, in patience, in evangelism. Now, why one? Why do we say just one? Why not five? Why not 25? Why not think big? Here's why. Because none of us can reach everyone, but all of us can reach someone. We can all reach just one and think of and pray for just one, and all together they will be a conglomeration of many. So Luke chapter 15 gives us insight into this. In Luke chapter 15, if you just look over the chapter as your Bible is open, you will notice if you have a red letter edition that most of the chapter is red because Jesus is doing the talking. The first few verses are in black because that's the setup to what Jesus goes on to say. And what he says in chapter 15, he gives three stories. We call them parables. And a parable is simply uh, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's the best way to think of a parable. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus wants to bring spiritual truth, so... He tells a story using familiar elements. And the three stories in chapter 15 are about things that are lost that get found. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's a lost son, the prodigal son. I want to look at the first parable. In each three of the parables, each three of the stories, there are four different phases. There is a loss. There is a search, there is a recovery, and there is joy. Those are the four phases that are present in all three of the parables. But because I'm a preacher and I like to alliterate things, as you can see in your worship folder, we're going to look at the running, the reconnaissance, the recovery, and the rejoicing. Why do I do this, by the way? I do it simply as handles for your memory. Sometimes you can remember things better if they're put in that way. So let's look at the first one, the running This is the loss. Verse 1 of chapter 15, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, that is Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, 
does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. The setting that Jesus is in gives rise to the stories that Jesus gives. And as I mentioned, three stories. Why stories? Why these stories? What's up with these parables? Here's the deal. Jesus is sitting down and having an extended meal with the riffraff, the unsavory, the spiritual and social outcasts, the rejects. Why is he doing that? Simple answer. He loves them. That's why. That's why. He loves them. And they are, in the words of his parable, lost sheep, or a lost coin, or a lost son. And he is there to find them. Now the Pharisees look at this, and they're all concerned about externals. Jesus is concerned about the internal. But they look at this setting of Jesus with these people, and they're thinking, this doesn't look good. Um, here's an up-and-coming rabbi that people are surrounding them or getting around. They're, they're surrounding this man, and he's becoming very popular. But it doesn't look good for him to be with these rejects. Their hands have handled Roman taxes. Their hands have done evil things. But Jesus is about the heart behind the hand. He's about the soul. He's about the person himself or herself. Now listen to the scorn of these religious leaders. This man, verse 2, receives sinners and eats with them. The people that Jesus is hanging out with were regarded by the religious leaders as unclean. That was their term, unclean. Or as we would say when we were kids, they had cooties. They had spiritual cooties. You don't hang out with those. Pharisees had a term for such people. Um, they called them people of the land. That was a very low designation. People of the land as opposed to themselves being people of the law. And people of the law don't associate with nor eat with people of the land. People of the land were outcasts. People of the land were barred from synagogues. And uh, they even had a saying I want to read to you the saying the Pharisees had about such people. And I'm quoting. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That was their saying. Compare their saying to Jesus saying, verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So the story begins with a loss. There's a lost sheep. Question, how did the sheep get lost? Answer, we're not told in Luke. We are told in Matthew's gospel. A parallel account of this, I'm reading to you out of Matthew 18. Jesus said, if a man has a sheep and one of them goes astray. Ah, that's how it got lost. It went astray. If one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost? So the sheep is not lost because of the negligence of the shepherd, not lost because of the indolence of the shepherd. The sheep is lost because of the obstinance of the sheep. 
The sheep ran away. The sheep withdrew himself. So this is the running. It's a perfect illustration of us. In our natural state, apart from God, the way we were born, we are born lost. Lost. In fact, the Bible even says we're worse off than being lost. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead. You were born DOA, dead on arrival. You were born alienated from God in your natural state. Theologians say we are sinners by nature and by choice. We're born into it, and then we prove that we've been born into it by constantly doing it, constantly doing it. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And that makes us like the sheep in the story. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's our natural position. The first question God ever asked, as recorded in the Bible, do you know what it was? It was in the garden. He said it to Adam. Adam, where are you? Answer, lost. Like a sheep, ran away. Now, the illustration here, the story, is about sheep. And this appears many times throughout the Bible. It was a common motif, common a sight around Israel to see shepherds and sheep. But I don't think it's a coincidence. If you know anything about sheep, and I've talked to several people who have been shepherds both in the Middle East and here in America, they will tell you that sheep are not renowned for their brilliance. They're not known for their mental acumen. They are prone to wander. But here's the deal. A sheep that gets lost doesn't know it's lost. It's just out there having a good old time, checking things out. That sheep doesn't know it's lost. Like people, like most people, you say, you're lost. I'm not lost. I'm good. I'm okay. You're not better than I am. I'm fine. Like sheep, people are lost, but they don't know it. One professor of philosophy said, the existence of sheep is evidence against the theory of evolution. He said, if evolution were true, there's just no way sheep could have survived. I've always liked that. Sheep need leading because sheep get lost. Sheep need watching because sheep are always wandering. So they need oversight. They need attention or they're going to die. Um, uh, one of the first five books I ever purchased as a believer uh, was one of them. It was called um, uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. It's a classic. I still have my original copy in my library. Falling apart, but it's good. Philip Keller was a shepherd for years in Canada, so he watched them, he worked with them and other livestock, and he writes, sheep do not just take care of themselves as some might suppose. They require, more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. It is no accident, he writes, that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. So when a sheep gets lost, they don't find their way back. They're lost. Like lost in space, they're lost. So they don't have great navigational skills like a pigeon has or like a dog has. I was walking my dogs down by the river uh, some time ago, and one of them, I was going to say got lost, but ran away like the sheep. 
searched for about an hour, could not find that little puppy, went back to the car where we had parked to take the walk, and my dog had navigated back to the place of origin and was sitting there at the car. A sheep would never do that. So this is the running. That's the first phase. Second phase is the search, the reconnaissance. Verse 4. Which man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost? Have you ever experienced being separated from your child? Like at a, at a theme park or a sporting event or a, a large store? You know, you look around and goes, where's Junior? And you call and there's no answer. And what happens at that point? You're frantic at that point. You go on a search, and it won't end till you find that child. You're hoping for the best. You're imagining the worst. But there's a search. So in this story, discovering the loss, the search begins immediately. He goes after the one. If you're a business person reading this story, you might at this point be analyzing it going, why go out after one? You got 99. It's only a 1% loss. The bottom line isn't greatly affected. Valuable, yes, but not all that valuable. You just keep the 99, protect it, and move on. But not this shepherd, and here's why. Because the shepherd isn't thinking about the bottom line. The shepherd isn't thinking about himself. The shepherd is thinking about the sheep. And you'll see that as we go through the story, that his thoughts are focused on the sheep. If you have ever felt lost in a crowd, if you have ever felt I'm just a number among many people, I hope you take heart by this story. I hope you understand the value that you have to God the Father, that he would write about you in this story that if one sheep goes astray, the shepherd is concerned and goes after the one. And you'll notice something. Look, at, look again at that verse. This is not a careless search. This is not a cursory search. This is a very, very calculated, concentrated search because he says he goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. He is restless in his pursuit until that one is found. Now, I'm, I'm imagining this. I can't say for sure, but if they were any students of the Bible at all, these Pharisees and scribes, which I imagine they were based on what I've read about them. I'm picturing Jesus giving this parable, and as he gives it, they're thinking, well, this sounds familiar. This, this rings a bell. I think I've heard this story somewhere before, and if they were thinking that, I, I'd pat them on the back and go, you're good Bible students, because you're thinking of Uh, A passage out of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet. Ezekiel 34, God pictures himself through the words of a prophet like this. Listen to what it says. I'll just read a section. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among the scattered sheep. So I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will seek what was lost, bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, and strengthen what is sick. Therefore, I will save my flock 
and they shall no longer be a prey. God the Father is pictured as a restless shepherd for the nation of Israel, seeking them until they are found. Here, Jesus speaks about reaching out to find the one who has gone astray. Back in the 80s, there was a new theology that came out on Star Trek. I call it Star Trek theology. You remember the scene when, when um, this is, I think 1982, I forget which, which of the movies, but Spock is trapped in a room and he's dying. And he puts out that little funny hand thing and he puts it up to the window where Jim Kirk is on the other end. And he goes, Jim, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Remember that? So the whole line is, Jim, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one, he said, or the one. I'm glad God doesn't think like Spock. According to this parable, the loss of the one outweighs the laxness of the many. I'm going to go find that sheep. And the search begins. Now, I've heard people say when I've talked to them about spiritual things, they'll kind of weigh in and go, yeah, well, you know what? I, I'm on a search for God. I've been looking for, I'm, I'm searching. I, I haven't landed. That's just sort of their smoke and mirrors way of saying, I don't want to commit to anything. So I'm on a search for God. And I always like to remind them, well, newsflash, God isn't lost. You are. You might think you're searching for God. The truth is, God put that on your heart because He's looking for you. He's searching for you. You're the one that is lost, not Him. Now, Jesus speaks of the shepherd looking after the sheep, the lost sheep, as an illustration of God looking after the sinner who goes astray. Okay? New Testament scholars say, the idea of a God in heaven searching after sinners was a revolutionary concept. Revolutionary concept. Back in the 1800s, a man by the name of Francis Thompson was in medical school. He dropped out of medical school, became addicted to drugs, opium at the time. He became an opium addict. He attempted suicide. He survived that horrible ordeal. Stabilized, he found Christ and he wrote a poem, a very long poem, 182 line poem called The Hound of Heaven. It's a poem about him running from God and God pursuing him, The Hound of Heaven. I'll spare you, I won't read all 182 lines, but here's just a couple of them. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And then he describes God's pursuit, saying, But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Those are the words I like. Unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Pictures God just there, right behind you, chasing you, following you. So you're running from God, God's going, I'm here. I don't want you. I'm here. Uh, get away from me. I'm here. I'm not feeling so good. Well, I'm here to rescue you. I'll get, go away. I'm, 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 keep I'm here. I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to search for you until I find you. Unperturbed pace. Now, I bring that up because as you think of that one person that you're going to pray for and 
concentrate on. Ask yourself, how will I reflect the searching heart of God to that person? And I will tell you, you're going to need a lot of patience, a lot of persistence, a lot of unrelenting love, like you heard in the testimonials moments ago. There was that person who was always there and who was available to them and walked through the darkness with them. So that's the, that's the search. So we have running, reconnaissance. The third phase is the best phase. It's the recovery phase. Something is found. Now, all three parables highlight this phase, that something that is lost gets found. So in verse 5, our parable, when he has found it, the sheep, he lays it on his shoulder. Go down to verse 9. The woman loses a coin. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors. The next parable, the prodigal son runs away, comes back home. The father sees him and says to the brother, oldest brother, verse 32, It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. This is the recovery. The recovery symbolizes salvation. That day, that hour, that moment, you surrendered your life to Christ. That's when you were found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Now that is the stated goal of Jesus Christ. His stated goal for coming to the earth, which he will give in Luke chapter 19, is this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's his purpose statement. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Do you remember the day when that happened for you? I remember it like yesterday. Remember the moment that I surrendered my life to Christ. Do you? Keep that in mind. Remember it. You were stuck. You couldn't fix yourself. You cried out for him, and when you did, you were found. It's interesting, shepherds have a condition or know about a condition of sheep. They call it a cast sheep. Now, let me describe it. A cast sheep means the sheep has wandered from the flock and just sort of picture yourself, put yourself in behind the wool of a little sheep. The sheep walks around and he sees a little, kind of a little low-lying depression, like a little half a hole in the ground. And he looks at it and he must think, that looks pretty good. That hole looks really great. I'm going to go lie down in that thing. So he puts his body and lays down in that little depression. Here's what happens. Because it sinks a little bit in the ground, there's a weight shift. There's a center of gravity shift. Once he lays down in it, the center of gravity shifts to the side and to the back. So the legs are off to the side or even dangling in air. Once that happens, the sheep is stuck, cannot move, cannot get up on its own. It's impossible. And over time, gases build up in the sheep's body, cutting off the circulation to the peripheral appendages, the arms and the, or the, the four legs, arms and legs, the legs of the sheep. <laughs> so it can sort of dangle in midair, but it will die. Shepherds say, it will die unless it is found. And the shepherd can pick it up, put it back on its feet, and it can go on. A cast sheep. 
So what does this shepherd do? He finds the sheep, verse 5, notice. And when he has found it, he kicks it and says, You dumb, stupid sheep. You pack of wool. What are you thinking running away from the flock? Does he say that? Does he do that? No, he doesn't. He does the most tender thing of all. He doesn't just take the cast sheep and put it up on its feet and go, okay, come on, follow, let's go. He picks it up. He transfers the burden to himself, and he carries it on his shoulders. So if you're thinking, yes, God has walked with me through my whole life. No, no. He's walked with you, but he's carried you a lot of the way. Yeah, you you might have thought God was walking with you, but he was carrying you because he knew you were out of strength. And this is the kind of compassion that the Father has for those who are lost. I'm going to pick them up, and I'm going to put that burden on my shoulders and carry that sheep to my house. He puts the weight of you on him. We all know Psalm 23, written by David a shepherd. But don't forget Psalm 28, also written by David the shepherd, when he prays for his nation Israel. And Psalm 28 says, Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So it's not like on the day of your salvation he picked you up. No, on the day of your salvation and every day after that, forever. So he, he carries the weight of your sins on the cross, but he carries the weight of you on him. Put you on his shoulders. The fourth phase is the joy phase, the rejoicing phase. Notice verse 5, when he is found, he lays it on his shoulder. What's the last word? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. This is a happy shepherd. I don't know, he's singing, he's whistling, he's woohoo, found the sheep, he's happy. Rejoicing isn't just, he's happy. He's rejoicing. But watch this, and when he comes home, he's not done rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, it's, it's cool to be a shepherd and find what you lost, but really you're going to call your friends over and have a party because you found a sheep? And they're thinking, they're on the phone. Well, they don't have phones, but they're doing. you want me to come over to your house because of a sheep? Why? Well, I'm a really happy shepherd. So you'll notice there's two rejoicings, right? There's a private rejoicing. Then there's a public rejoicing where friends and neighbors come over and enjoy the festivities. And what's the application? Verse 7, I say to you that likewise, just like this, that's what likewise means, just like a shepherd who gets happy privately, and gets other people involved publicly, just like that, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. There's a happy, happy God. You ever picture God rejoicing? You know, most people don't, I think. I think most people picture God as, well, He's God. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's mighty. He doesn't need to get happy. He's, he's in control. He might even have his arms folded like this, kind of with a frown looking at all the dumb things sheep are doing down in that sheep pen. <laughs> but if you are picturing God as a stoic, detached, sort of unconcerned, impassive God, you've got the wrong God. According to chapter 15, As described in these parables, he is a rejoicing, laughing, congratulating, hugging God. He's stoked. 
And here, the initial joy of finding one lost sheep outshines the settled joy of those who are already in the fold. I want to say that again. The initial joy of finding the one lost sheep outshines the settled joy of those who are already in the fold. If you're a parent, you understand that. If you've ever had one child in your family get really sick and then recover, you have joy for that recovered child more so than enjoying the ongoing health of the rest of the family. You don't feel guilty that you're celebrating the recovery. You're happy. You rejoice. This is why sometimes at the end of services when we give an ultra call, you hear us applaud. We're applauding. We're happy. We're joining the festivities. It's right to do so. I hope you're not thinking when we applaud for those one or two or three or ten individuals coming forward. I hope you're not thinking thoughts like, well, they never applaud. They never clap for me. Because actually, we are clapping for you. We are. We are rejoicing in the work that we've all been a part of. You see, my part's the easy part. Me calling people forward, that's the easy part. I may be harvesting the grain, but you planted the seed. You watered it. You talked to those people. You had conversations. Now they're at a place where they're going to make good on that. But we are all rejoicing together. We're working together for the one. God is rescuing the one. We are rejoicing over the one. God and the angels are rejoicing over the one. St. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Love that. Our Father in heaven, you love people. You love outcasts. You love rejects. You love all of us. All of us are born lost. All of us in need of a shepherd. All of us need to be found. And when the finding takes place, it's only right to have a great celebration. So, Lord, we, we can't change everyone. We can't reach everyone. But we can reach someone. Bring that person to our mind. May that person be the subject of our thoughts and prayers and conversations and love and patience and following and more conversations until that day that they surrender to Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you, our shepherd, became a sheep so that John could say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The shepherd became a sheep to enable sheep to get into the fold. Finally, as we close this service, if you're here and you have not experienced that great joy of getting a ride on the shoulders of Jesus, may he find you today and lift you high on his shoulders and bear your sins and bear your struggles and sorrows all the way from here to heaven. It takes a simple surrender to him. You'll discover that the search has ended. His search for you has ended. He found you and brought you to his flock and fold today. If you've never given your life to Christ, or if you've wandered away from him,
but you have that desire to be forgiven, to be found, to be part of, of, of his flock and the object of his love, I'm going to ask you to do something as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I'll leave mine open. But you raise your hand in the air, and by raising it up high, you're saying, Skip, pray for me. Here's my hand, but there's a heart behind this hand. Thank you for raising it high. God bless you to the right. And right up here, yes, sir. And right in the middle again. Anyone else? Raise that hand up. Right there and toward the back. Raise it in the family room. A couple of you, three, four of you right over there in the family room. In the very back, yes. Thanks for those hands. In the balcony. Father, for each hand, for each person, they have their own stories. But thank you, Lord, their story didn't end without your story as part of it. And the day that they found a home in the one who found them, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for doing that now, right here in our midst, right now. Thank you for that admission and acknowledgement. I pray, Lord, you put a settled peace and, and, a, and a, a relief in these lives, these hearts. I pray there would be a transformation as there is that surrender in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand, shall we? As we sing this final song, that great song, Breakthrough, we're going to start off kind of slow. And then we're going to build it up a little bit because we want to rejoice together. But if you raised your hand, and I saw some in the family room and in the balcony, and um, I want to give you an opportunity to find the nearest aisle or walk down the steps. We're going to wait for just a moment, but come quickly. Find the nearest aisle. Come right up here to the front where I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ right here, right now as Savior and Lord. So as if you're in the family room, just come right through the doors to your right, through the hallway and right in here. But come, if you're in the back, in the middle, just say, excuse me, find the nearest aisle. Come stand right up here. Take just a moment. Listen to the encouragement for you coming. Listen to that. That's rejoicing. As people are coming forward, I've just noticed the last couple of minutes off and on, it's been snowing a little bit outside. And I'm reminded of what Isaiah the prophet said. God said through him, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God is reasonable. He says, let's reason together. Yeah. Think this through. 
Do the reasonable thing, the smartest thing. Surrender your life to the shepherd who can carry you all the way through. No matter your past, let your past turn into a present reality and a future hope. You come who you are, how you are. Come down the steps of that balcony, through that doors of the family room, in the middle of a row or an aisle. Just say, excuse me, we've done this before. We'll accommodate you, but you come. I'm going to lead those who have come in a prayer. You come. Shattered by the one truth Cause you are here I'd love now to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to say this prayer out loud. I'd like you to say it out loud after me. Say these words from your heart. Mean them as you say them. You're saying them to the Lord. You're surrendering your life to Him. So let's pray. Say, Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus. That He came to earth to die for my sin. That he rose again from the dead. I turn from my past. I turn to Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. Help me to live for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.